Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, the Catholic book blogger. And today we have with us Mike Aquilina, who is the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a contributing editor for Angelus News. He is author of more than 50 books, including The Fathers of the Church and Villains of the Early Church. He hosts the Way of the Fathers podcast for CatholicCulture.org and edits the Reclaiming Catholic History series for Ave Maria Press. Today we'll be speaking about his latest book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Pete. Absolutely. So we're talking, it's great to have you here as a friend to talk about a book on friendship. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Well, it's... uh... It's it's something that's uh, that's in short supply today. I think for a lot of people, I think uh, I think there's an epidemic of loneliness going on right now, mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of borne out by research that that uh, people report today having fewer friends than they reported having back in the 1980s, and and there are about at least a quarter of the people in the United States are saying that they have no friends at all. Uh, so uh, and 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 it's not only a problem in 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 the United States, it's also been identified as a a major health problem, a public health problem in the United Kingdom. So, uh, so they've taken measures over there to to deal with it. So, yeah, I think it's an important issue for us to look at right now. Right. So, what exactly uh, brought this book to be? It's kind of a um, obviously it's hinged upon the Church Fathers, which is your wheelhouse, but it's a different topic. I've never seen a book on friendship in the Catholic publishing space, so to speak. Ah, okay. Well, uh, you know, all of that is background. You know, everything I said um, uh, just a, a minute ago about uh, about the, the the real famine of friendship that's going on right now, the epidemic of loneliness that's going on in our country. Um, but uh, but the idea for the book really came from a friend of mine. I was I was at Notre Dame University. I was giving an academic paper, and uh, on my way after I'd given the paper, on my way back to my seat. A friend of mine from Catholic University, Pat Fagan, just grabbed me and he said, Mike, you know what? You need to write a book about the fathers and friendship. And I said, I said, Pat, there's there's not enough material. Mm -hmm. And he said, he shrugged. 
and I sat down. And when I sat down, I had my notebook there, and I started making a list of all the material I knew about just off the top of my head. And I said, that's a pretty substantial list. He might have a point there. So then I got back to my hotel room. I started Googling a little bit, and I found a lot more material. And then at the end of the week, I came home. I was in my library here, and uh, and and I, I I looked around my shelves, and I found even more material. So by the you know within a couple of weeks uh, of of Pat saying that to me, I had uh, I had written a proposal, and I had a book contract in hand. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like it, like it, it was the right time, you know, given the circumstances of uh, of 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 where we're living right now, mm-hmm. uh, but also because. Because I, I respect Pat Fagan, and I think he came up with a good idea for me. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the individual, some of the individual fathers you included in the book, um, how do you think the church fathers in particular can help us tackle this mm, pandemic of lack of friendship today? <laughs> well, you know, we have this idea as Catholics, that we're supposed to be uh, doing the new evangelization. We're supposed to be evangelizing. And, you know, a lot of people associate it with Bible thumping or the kind of the kind of uh, the kind of thing you see on the streets when some street preacher is out there telling everybody they're going to hell, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Catholics are turned off by that sort of thing. But that's not what evangelization meant in the early church. You know, some some other people might think that evangelization is something that you have to learn how to do from you know the duly appointed authorities you know you have to you have to go to the chancery and sit through a course on evangelization and get a certificate at the end before you say anything mm-hmm. and there are lots of good courses out there i don't mean to put them down but we don't need that you know we can evangelize the way the early christians did how did they do it they did it through friendship that's the way they evangelized because they had they had no access to media like there, there were no mass media to speak of, you know, like we have today. Mm-hmm. There were no books, right? There was no printing press. Uh, there, there were no pamphlets you could hand out in the in the market square. There were there was no radio, television, internet. How did information get around? Well, somebody stood in the forum and shouted if you wanted to get information out, and Christians could not do that because the practice of Christianity was prohibited by law and in fact it was a capital crime so if you stood out in the marketplace and you started shouting about jesus you were likely to be dead by the next morning and you wouldn't have too much of a career as a preacher so how did the church evangelize and we know that they did evangelize successfully because we know that the church grew Mm -hmm. for 275 years at a steady rate of 40 percent per decade that's incredible growth. Mm-hmm. How did they do it? Well, they did it through friendship. They did it through friendship, and and uh, and that's the way we can do it too. You know, we can do it by befriending the people next door uh, and and getting to know them, knowing their names for starters, and uh, and 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 letting God take it from there. Mm-hmm. You know, you said something there that kind of uh, sparked a thought in me here as we talk, but. One of the things the uh, early church fathers didn't have was the technology we have. And part of the problem with developing friendships, I think, nowadays is the social media tools we have that keep us away from people and a screen between us. And it doesn't force us to form any kind of relationship. Yeah. And one thing I bring up in the book is that is that social media are kind of returning us to a pre-Christian point in our understanding of friendship. You know, if you read Aristotle on friendship, or if you read Cicero on friendship, they were adamant 
that in order to ha have a friend, have, have, in order to be friends, you had to be equals in every way. And you had to agree on everything. You know, you had to make the same amount of money. You had to have the same social status. You, you know, you had, to, you had to be equal in absolutely everything or it would create unhealthy dependencies in the friendship. Uh, Aristotle actually uses the example, you know, that it would be impossible, you know, for a god to have a friendship with a human being, right? Hmm. Well, Jesus came along and kind of upset that apple cart, right? <laughs> kind of. God is incarnate in Christ. He takes flesh and he comes to earth and he looks at the the, the people who are closest to him, the, the 12 apostles, and he tells them, I have called you friends. You know, you're no longer servants. I have called you friends. In St. John's Gospel, chapter 15, this is a revolutionary idea that, 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 two, that two beings so unequal could have a friendship. Well, our Lord is trying to show us what we should be doing. He's trying to give us example so that we'll follow him, that we should be open to friendship in, amid all kinds of inequality. Mm -hmm. And and also, you know, uh, you know, he he's 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 really affecting a revolution, as I said. And Christians exemplified that; they embodied that through the centuries that followed. Um, but but right now, I think we're we're sliding back. Right now, we're sliding back. And so through social media, we make these little bubbles mm -hmm. where everybody agrees with us, you know. And if we encounter someone who doesn't agree with us, well, what do we do? We unfriend that person. Mm -hmm. That person can't be can't be near us anymore because we find we find him unpleasant, you know. So so we're I think we're we're regressing to a time where we don't have real friendships. We don't have friendships of depth. What we have are social media friendships. Uh, which are very, very superficial, very shallow, and uh, and um, and very much like the the kind of friendships the pagans were having. Right, right. You know, the first um, you lead off with Minucius Felix and his only surviving literary work, Octavia, and that book I thought was rather chapter I thought was rather interesting because. It deals, again, it seems like everything circles around the social media conversation, but it deals with civil disagreement and resolution amongst friends. And as you say, we don't do that now. So what can we learn from this particular work? That's actually my favorite chapter in the book because it's a little-known work by a little-known author. You know, when, when, when do you hear about Minutius Felix? Mm -hmm. When does anybody quote the Octavius? Well, like, never, right? <laughs> but it's a fascinating book. It's this novelistic memoir that he writes in order to memorialize one of his friends who just passed away. And it's it just tells of what happened during a single weekend in their friendship, right? Uh, Minutius Felix is a lawyer who's who's uh, who's from North Africa but living in Rome. And he's obviously um, a player, right? He's mm -hmm. a prosperous guy. He's, he's a man of some prestige. Um, it's a holiday weekend, and he takes he takes his vacation with two of his colleagues. So they're three lawyers, and they go to the resort town of Ostia. It's now called Ostia Antica. They go there to spend their holiday. And while they're there, they have conversations, of course, right? Mm -hmm. And the conversations eventually get around to very important matters, religious matters. Well, two of them— Minucius Felix and Octavius are Christians. The third, Cecil, is a pagan. And he he kind of provokes an argument. 
And so they just simply did what lawyers do. They 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 carried the argument forward. They carried the debate forward and they said, "Okay, Marcus, you be the judge and we'll have this debate. You know, I'll debate the Christian position, he'll debate the pagan position and and we'll see who comes out ahead." Well, Marcus never needs to render judgment because by the end of the conversations uh, Cecil has become Christian. He says that. He says he he's going to seek baptism. So, you know, we see there how friendship just naturally led to a successful evangelization. Mm-hmm. That friendship led to the conversations that led to the conversion. But it all happened in a very natural way. It wasn't forced. It wasn't some kind of programmatic thing. It wasn't somebody's elevator pitch, you know, that you're hearing from somebody who really doesn't care about you in the long run. You know, it was it was something that was part of a relationship that was already a relationship of trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good. That was I had never heard of of that um, minutius either. So that was surprising to see him in there and uh, a welcome addition to the book. Um, you also cover more familiar uh, folks such as Saint Basil and Gregory, and, and as you mentioned in the book, they're total po- total uh, opposites on the personality spectrum. <laughs> they yes. disagreed often, but remained friends. And Gregory went so far as writing, "quote that Basil was the best thing that ever happened to him." Yes. What does their example show us about overcoming or seeing past our differences to formulate a friendship? What I like about that episode, what I like about that story is um, is that it doesn't sugarcoat friendship. You know, it doesn't say that friendship is something that's just easy breezy and it's never going to challenge you. You're right when you say that these guys who were friends since their teen years were opposites in many ways. You know, Basil had kind of a dominating personality and, and Gregory tended to be passive. But but you know what he would he would go into this passive mode and he would just do whatever was told what he whatever he was told but he was re- he would resent it afterwards and then he would get emo and he'd get kind of passive aggressive about the relationship and he did that with Basil you know uh, Gregory allowed himself to be coerced into ordination to the priesthood and then to be pressured into ordination as a bishop and he resented both of these things but these are both events he had consented to you know, mm-hmm. so it caused a kind of estrangement between him and Basil, but he was committed to the friendship, and they did carry the friendship forward until Basil's death. And when Basil died, Gregory was the one who was brought forward to eulogize his friend and really left this wonderful memorial that we have that makes up most of that chapter, which is his um his uh his his biography of Basil, really, so that people would never forget his friend. Or their friendship, and and his friend's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Another uh, interesting inclusion in the book was Augustine, who you know we all know about his conversion story, but um, maybe not so much. I was surprised by his um, inclusion; didn't think about that. And in that chapter, you look at a letter Augustine wrote about Jerome. That letter yeah. highlighted a rather large difference of opinion on what boundaries uh, are set in a friendship. Can you tell us a bit about what? they felt those boundaries were and were not acceptable about friendship. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Augustine's an, a, a fascinating figure. He really is because he was such a warm personality. Um, he made friendships in childhood that he he carried through 
um, all 70 some years of his life. Uh, and, and that's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that they were just like, you know, pen pals or something like that. He made such close friendships that when he went away to college, to the big city of Carthage, his friends moved there to be close to him. And then when he took a job overseas in Rome, his friends moved there to be with him. And then when he took another job in northern Italy, in Milan, his friends moved along with him. And when he moved back to Africa, his friends followed him because they could not imagine a life without Augustine near them. And some of them went into the priesthood when Augustine did, and they ended up spending the, the rest of their lives living in community with him. Because, again, that's the way Augustine formed friendship. So he was a very warm figure. He talked a lot about friendship. He told his personal story. His, he made, you know, wrote his autobiography in terms of friendships. You know, he structured it according to the friendships that he had in life. And he really did try to form friendships with the people that he met. Um, and when, whenever he, even when he had differences with others, he tried to establish a context of warmth and welcoming and friendship before he got to got around to stating the differences. And he tried that with Jerome. <laughs> he begins, you know, he, he begins by by flattering Jerome in many ways, but gradually he gets to the point, which is that he's calling Jerome's project into question, his project of translating. The Bible, as it was, the Bible as it as it was um, into Latin, it, and it would be a different uh, translation from what people were used to hearing in the liturgy. And he's saying, "Well, maybe that's not such a good idea." Now, Jerome did not like hearing that, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know he comes back at a, a at Augustine uh, with both guns blazing because that was just Jerome's personality. He was an irascible figure. And he uh, he uh, he he was kind of cantankerous, uh, but but you know eventually Augustine persevered in um, in his diplomacy really, and he shows how he masters the art of uh, of forming friendships because he stuck stuck in it. You know he didn't just run away as soon as Jerome came back at him with with his uh, his guns blazing. No, he stayed he stayed in it and he. Uh, he eventually developed a, a friendship through correspondence with Jer Jerome, and I think it was genuine, even though they never met in person. Augustine managed to form many such friendships, including with Paulinus of Nola and with others to whom he gave spiritual direction, even by letters. Mm -hmm. And then you also have uh, St. John Chrysostom in here, um, and his message I felt was very timely, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit what he says, but... He says that when speaking with non-Christian friends, you must lead a Christian life as an example to them. Uh, yes. That really goes back to the very early days of Christianity in, in the early church. Um, how is that advice still relevant today? Well, I mean, that's what makes Christ credible. That's what makes Christ present to these people and palpable. You know, often, um, uh, if, if you go back to the second century and you read Tertullian, he, he talks about how how the pagans looked at them and said, see those Christians, how they love one another. He said that that the pagans thought we wore love like it was a brand on our bodies, like 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 it was a tattoo on our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, but but the love was born out in deeds. It wasn't a brand. It wasn't a tattoo. It was born out in deeds. People saw that, and at first, you know, they enjoyed having things done for them. But eventually, you know, they, they wanted to live the way these Christians lived. 
They saw that that Christians had happy homes. They saw that Christians tended to to stay married, and uh, and that that Christians had other things that made life very attractive. And they said, "I want that for myself. How do I get it?" And eventually, they got around to asking the questions, even at the risk of losing their lives, because Christianity, as I said, was illegal. It was a capital crime. But within the context of friendship, you have that level of trust where you can you can ask those questions. You can say, I don't think this is life-threatening. You know, it may be life-changing. I'm going to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last chapter of your book um, really draws it all, all together, and it's very fitting. It's called Third Century Solutions to a 21st Century Problem. And in that chapter, you discuss how up until the 20th century, Christianity would be attacked and essentially regain whatever it lost, such as with uh, one example you gave was Napoleon in France. Um, mm-hmm. You point out that being Christian for some may not be so easy to do anymore uh, in our society today. Um, we're not getting, quote-unquote, physically attacked, but there's subtle attacks against Christianity on a uh, psychological level, we'll say. And we know who ends on the last day, but what's our path forward here and now? You know, uh, I, I was reading, and I mentioned this in the book, I was reading that in the United Kingdom, uh, the, the government recognized that, um, that, that loneliness is, is, a, is a major public health problem. Mm-hmm. And so they established uh, a ministry of loneliness. <laughs> you know, the government established this so that people could go there and have social acts prescribed to them by doctors. You know, and then then you'd go out and fulfill these acts of friendship. I think that that should convict us as Christians that we have failed, mm-hmm. because if the early church grew so much, and if the early Christians succeeded so wildly because of the friendships they formed, well, we're living in a country now where no friendships are being formed. We're not doing our jobs. Right. You know, we need to get out of our shells, even. And I say this as someone who's an extreme introvert. We need to get out of our shelves, make ourselves available, and and go out and meet people. One of the great saints of the last century, St. Jose Maria Escrivá, said, um, out of 100 people, we should be interested in 100. Out of 100, we should be interested in 100. And, and you know, all of those people are interesting if you take the time to get to know them. And that's what you have to do. You know, you have to get into people's lives, get to know them, and then find what's interesting about them. Uh, We don't give ourselves that kind of a a chance. We don't look up from our phones. I think we need to stop depending on technology to form relationships for us and and really get out and know the people who live next door to us. I once talked to a priest. He, um, He said the real challenge in being a pastor today is the way the suburbs are structured, the way the suburban life is structured. He said, you have people who pull into their garage at the end of the day. They don't come out of the house again (laughs) until the next morning, and then they leave their garage and go someplace else to work. Mm -hmm. If they do go out in the evening, you know, to take their kids somewhere, they're taking their kids elsewhere. And it's a different life from the old-fashioned parishes where all the kids knew all the other kids on the block. They played on the same Little League team. They all went to the same school and so on. That doesn't happen now. He said, I have a territory where nobody knows the names of the people who live to the left 
or the right of them. Nobody knows the name of the people who live behind them. Mm-hmm. And this, to me, should convict us as Christians. We need to know the names of our neighbors. We need to know the faces of our neighbors. We need to be in the lives of our neighbors. They need to know that we're the people they can count on to make a meal if they're having a hard time. We're the people they can count on to get a ride when they need it. You know, we've got to be in their lives for that to happen. Absolutely. Great advice. Great book. Mike, where can people find your book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized? I think they'll get the best price at catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com. That that website has a page for all my books, and they usually have the best prices. All right. Mike, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day and spending it with us. Thanks so much, as always. Any closing thoughts? No, it's just that this is a very urgent issue right now. As I said, mm-hmm. we're, li- we're living in a time when there's a famine of friendship, when there's a pandemic of loneliness, and we're concentrating on everything but this issue. There are people who need us today. And, uh, and, and we're responsible for them. Uh, you know, we are our brother's keepers. Uh, we've got to get out there and meet these brothers and meet these sisters who are waiting for us. And with that, you've been listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, Catholic Book Blogger. Until next time, God bless. This is Kevin O'Brien of EWTN's Theater of the Word. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live, interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you.